Bunsen, Dolly, Internal, Why do we need Patrick, Oscar, Isaac, Transplanting, Steve, I've got a beer. How are you? I've got a beer too. Cheers, cheers, cheers. <laughs> normally we don't have a beer when we're podcasting because normally it's eight o'clock in the morning. It but is. It's we're going back. We're today. going back to our old, um, longer. Uh, podcasts just you've got to know what you're good at and us having a beer late on a sunday night is probably better than us waking up early for a for a coffee in the morning isn't it it's possible i'm not totally sure about that yet but yeah it's it's (laughs) certainly more pleasurable that's true (laughs) how are you mate what you've been up to oh you know this and that ducking and diving ducking and diving wheeling and dealing wheeling and dealing it's the usual um stuff you know um trying to um just Keep people on the straight and narrow in the lab. That's make sure there's no COVID abuse. Yeah, I've been I've been tested. Themselves. I'm being tested, even though I'm not going in very often. Oh, really? I've got a big load of tubes. Look, I've got a bag here. I'm just showing Steve, um, mm. listeners. I've got a because I'm at the University of Southampton. We've got our own in-house testing regime. Steve, what, look at that. Look. Oh, that looks like a Falcon tube to me. It is a little specimen tube, and I've got a load of like barcodes. And basically, all you do is you go in. And you flob about a teaspoonful of sputum into this right. tube, and then you stick a little label on it. You put it in a jiffy bag, and you post it through it in a, like a letterbox on the campus. And you find out literally within about it can be six, seven hours, sometimes just overnight. But it's really That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, I'd, in my mind, there's like a little. You know, remember like in the kind of nineties when they used to like transport money in supermarkets through those like suction tubes. Oh yeah, yeah. You like put a little. You put the money in a little thing. And go, <laughs> That's what I'm imagining in Southampton. Nick just like spits into a tube, and then there's like some other, there's some like distribution network ready to to, to take his specimen tube away. Some kind of like what's that? What's that person called who drew all of the intricate kind of steampunk machinery and um, cartoons? Do you know what I mean? I forgot the name of the illustrator, a very famous illustrator. People will be screaming yeah, at, their, at their at their yeah. at their um, equipment now. But that's why they come to this podcast for us to go. Remember the guy that did that <laughs> thing that was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, life is life is fine. Um, you know, good to hear it. Um, the lab is moving. We've got people working in the lab. That's all good. They're doing work. It's a bit limited because they're stopping people like everyone going in at once. So it's a bit staggered, mm. and everyone's got a book time, which is inconvenient. But generally speaking, I think that um, my uni's dealing with it pretty well. It's good. I, I I I kind of agree. I feel like I feel like there's hope where there hasn't been hope for a while. I feel like the world is. It's got a kind of a path to return to normality, yeah, and a and a path to kind of get back get back to the kind of normality of trying to do science on a day to day basis. I'm, I'm quite excited. I've got it. a couple of tickets for gigs in September as well. I'm kind of like optimistic. Ooh, I think September you'll be fine. I hope I, so. I think, I think you could go even earlier. I reckon August will be fine. Oh, mate, I've got tickets for a Divine Comedy show and nice Turin breaks and. Um, Nick Mason of oh, the drummer from Pink Floyd's doing like an old. This is like dad rock, isn't it? This it's like total dad rock. All these bands <laughs> dating from pre like two thousand and five, going all the way back. I mean, like... I mean, I mean, Pink Floyd's from the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Well, I hope we get there, Steve. Should we crack on with a few little uh, podcasty tales? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, do you know how old the oldest fish in the world is? The oldest that fish? That ever lived. The oldest fish that ever lived. 
Is it Moby Dick or something? Oh, or Moby, some, some... Moby Dick. <laughs> I mean, that for number one, that wasn't a real. That was that was a, basically a fictional, and it wasn't. It was a mammal. It wasn't even a fish. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, people people cite Methuselah as the oldest human that's ever lived, and that was made up. Too, I tell you so. what, this is just highlighting Steve's lack of biological knowledge. Number one, knowing the not knowing the difference between fictional and real things, and number two, not knowing the difference <laughs> between fish and mammals. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair point. Um, okay, let me think about it. I reckon. So, so is this is this has to be a documented case. It's, is it, it's in an, aqu- an aquarium or a zoo or whatever, right? Oh, it's it, not it, alive it's... anymore. It, it's the oldest fish that's ever lived. It died the died in the seventies. Well, I would, I, would, I would imagine it was a big fish. It's a big thing. It's probably not a small fish. I would imagine it's like quite a hefty thing. Yeah, it was big. Uh, um, I'm going to go a sunfish. I don't know what that is, Steve. I mean, that's that. They're... What's a sunfish? <laughs> <laughs> they live in Asia. They're like those really like prehistoric things. Oh, okay. Just like a tail with with a face. Okay, that sounds cool. No, it's not one of those. Yeah. It's a koi carp. Okay. It's a koi carp. Uh, okay, Ciprinus is the genus name. Ciprina. Okay. It died when it was two hundred and twenty six years old in in Tokyo. Wow. Yeah, it was like a um a mass. Oh no, maybe it wasn't Tokyo. Somewhere in Japan. Higoi. Two hundred and twenty six. Um, two hundred and twenty six years old. Do you know how they find what's out? The, <laughs> what's the in? oldest? Well, one sec. The oldest animal that I thought lived was the like the big like Galapagos tortoises that they're like 150 odd or whatever. Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't actually gone into. I haven't researched what the oldest animal ever to live was. Yeah. But maybe maybe does this does fish. We, maybe we can... oh it does I'm, like but 200 that makes it one of the uh, other than like a mushroom or a tree that makes it probably one of the oldest things that's ever existed, isn't it? Well. Uh, animal yeah maybe yeah yeah i don't uh, and uh, like i say i don't know what the oldest animal to ever live with i'm just googling it now it's a tortoise apparently is the guinness world record yeah. so why is it the fish then oh that's the oldest living <laughs> that's the oldest living land animal no i can't be steve okay. you're making me google things on the podcast look we come back to it right just can we focus okay. on the fish no. <laughs> the fish was 200 back to the fish steve. The fish right. yeah, was I mean, two... it's impressive the fish was it's 226 impressive. years old how do we know how do we know? Um, because he had like uh, he had a a, birth, a little fishy birthday cake with two hundred and twenty six candles. Well, on. he did when he well, he, <laughs> when he got to that. Maybe he did when he got that birthday. But no, they count the rings. It's like trees. Like, they count the ring. What rings? <laughs> they count the rings in this particular case in the scales. I believe you can also count the rings in the thing called an otolith, which is a specific type of bone. But here, it was in the scales. And there's a picture. You can look at the picture of the microscope right. image of this concentric rings of. Uh, of the scale. So, so, just, so it's just like an oak tree. Yeah. It's the same kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. He was. You go, yeah. So every scale of this fish has like two, 227 little lines on it. Yeah, yeah. Right? But microscopic. I mean, That's I, amazing. I found it a bit difficult to believe, to be honest. <laughs> I love how <laughs> your own thing, you're like, yeah, it's probably wrong. <laughs> anyway, it got, it got me a bit interested in it as well. Because like, I was starting to think a bit more about the age of things. So I sort of went into. I looked about carp in, and looked in the mm. scientific literature, and I stumbled across a paper in Nature from like nine. A carp, a carp, particularly long-lived fish, or is there, are other fish? Are there other long-lived fish as well? I don't know. Okay. I think that the carp. Look, this carp lived a long <laughs> bloody time. I think basically they live. So they yeah. said here that it was probably because they live. It lives in really cold water. And they have a very, right. very reduced metabolism. So they don't metabolize very quickly. A lot of the year, they kind of sedate. And that's how you count the rings, because it's like trees. They 
you know seasonality you can see sort of the growth rates yeah. Yeah, yeah so when when it's summer it's hot they're moving more and probably things are happening faster yeah, and so yeah, you yeah. get the yeah. yeah okay get it anyway i thought i got interested in it so i had a look in the scientific literature i came across a couple of papers in nature yeah right. the first one was from 1982 which is a paper in nature it's just a review it's an opinion paper right and it was written by mm. the, the the author was just titled an aging correspondent right so <laughs> Some some staff writer on nature. Now, things were done differently in the eighties in nature. I, think. I, I love. I lo- yeah. Okay. So so basically, you're so unconfident with your research when you're a researcher, you're a journalist working for Nature that you won't even put your name to it. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, it said that they were talking about the longevity of these carps. This is a European mm-hmm. carp, and they'd analysed the ratio of carbon fourteen, which is of course a, uh, a radioactive isotope of carbon which, you know, once it gets incorporated into a living thing, it's a very precise decay curve. So you can work yeah, out when the animal lives. a stop clock. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When did the animal die? Anyway, so it, this article just goes on a bit about dating of fishes and stuff. And it said at the end, long life indeed is a fishy business. That was the, that was the, the closing gambit of it. And then I found another paper, right, which I'd found in the same search, right? And it was called um, The Dorian Grey Mouse. The Dorian okay. Grey Mouse. Okay, and I thought, the what's the Dorian? Of. Yeah, what's the yeah. Dorian Grey Mouse? So I started reading it. This is from 1993, right? Mm. And it says newly generated transgenic mice appear to be able to grow indefinitely without aging, yet with programmed cell death. And then it goes on to talk about this dramatic development. This is 1993, for instance. I was like, fuck, mm-hmm. I've not That's heard of this. Time ago, yeah. This is incredible. Yeah. I feel like you feel like you know you were reading this, going, "This is something I should have heard about." Yeah, it said apparently a gene you know. encoding tythonin was introduced from the carp, a fresh fort of fish. So the original paper had found this bacterium in, living in the gut of the fish, which had some kind of increased propensity to increase the fish's lifespan, which I found okay. interesting. I hadn't really paid attention to that. I was just looking at the stuff about the carbon fourteen and got bored of it yeah. and moved on. And it said they they got this gene and they this gene that they had introduced into these transgenic mice conver- conferred longevity and then they selected some mutants so, so, they found that in these so, mice they, they found that in these mice there was no sign of senescence there was no sign of aging sorry steve yeah. what were you going to ask and so, so i was gonna so, so they've taken a gene from the carp so, so carp live lo- live lives this a long is from time. the bug living in the carp's stomach in the intestines of the carp in a bacteria so, so they've taken the gene from the from a bug that lives in the carp exactly and then they put that into the mouse exactly Okay, so it's a bacterial gene. Into a mouse. So it's, nothing, it's, nothing, it's nothing to do with the carp. But the carp, like the carp, the carp we, we, was living longer because of the bacteria, apparently. Okay, fine. But, 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 but we don't need the carp. We just need the bacteria. Yeah. Okay, apparently. fine. I don't, know, goes, I don't know. I've not looked. Oh, yeah. And, okay, and so, so that, that gene's then expressed in a mouse, and then that mouse lives forever. Lives forever. And it said, third, by crossing these animals with others expressing a mutant P53 gene... And an inducible BCL2 gene. These are oncogenes. These are like yeah. genes which cause cancer when you get rid of them. The mice can be triggered to die within 48 hours by apoptosis. The, ma- the mice die. If you trigger these genes, the mice suddenly die of apoptosis. Wow. So I was, incre- I was incredulous. I was reading this thinking, well, how come we don't know about this? Well, okay. So there's a, th- there's a, there's a gene from a bacteria that lives in, the, lives in a carp. That if you put it in a mouse, makes the mouse live a long time. But if you turn on the gene, they die straight away. With another, if you cross them with another mouse, with an inducible cancer gene, the apoptosis. Anyway, the, the, the end of this article says, it comes as no surprise that the generation of ageless self-destructing higher organisms was viewed with concern. 
And then it goes off. Alarm was recently expressed at the... Re this is all reference, by the way. So those are references in right. this paper. A breeding moratorium was mooted, reminiscent of the Asiloma conference on DNA cloning 18 years ago. Do you know what I did then, Steve? You looked up that I conference? looked at the references. I couldn't find them. I couldn't find... Uh, the authors didn't exist. They're not in PubMed or anything. And then I looked at the date of the article. Do you know what the date of the article was? <laughs> When was the article published? The 1st of April, 1993. Ah, <laughs> so it's all rubbish. But it's weird because you can it's... find it. It was reported in the popular press at the time, right? So this is oh, what I wanted to talk come... about, really. Look, I just, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's really bad. <laughs> that's really bad. That like, you know, the, the academics will write articles that are total rubbish uh, because... Oh, my God. Anyway, so I looked it up. It was picked up by The Age, a newspaper in Melbourne, so you can read about it. It's called The Fountain of but, Youth. But did, well, no, no. But did, did they pick up on it being rub, uh, no, uh, no. an April Fool's joke? No, no. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a pop science article. It's called The Fountain of Youth Springs Eternal from a Fish's Gut. And it's like a big, like half a page feature on this, this article. Anyway, wow. I found the letters from the next issue of Nature as well. Like talking. Presumably they apologised or they they fessed up. No, they love it. They love it. 1993. <laughs> they love this stuff, right? It was. It was just. So, 1993. There was before cancel culture, <laughs> before Twitter, <laughs> before YouTube, before the wokeness. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Didn't matter, want. Steve. Didn't matter. You could just see. And they even they even mentioned right in this. This is the bit that I find crazy. In this article, yeah. they mentioned a human disease called Zachary's pejeria as a treat. You Not know, heard of that one. No, doesn't exist, Steve. In fact, <laughs> okay. the, the way in which I found the article in the newspaper was by Googling in inverted commas, Zachary's progeria. Then I realised it's not a right. real disease, but I found articles which had falsely like reproduced this kind of nonsense story. Oh, well, so, 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 okay, so it was a joke and then other people took it seriously, so much so that other people have then investigated the fake disease. No, they just mentioned the disease. So the okay. disease was mentioned in the original article, but if you try and because find, in, if, you try and if you try and find that uh, that disease, because I thought, what Zachary's progeria doesn't exist, yeah. except in articles which are reporting Referencing the nature. The... <laughs> anyway, I mean, this basically just tells you what all everyone's an idiot, doesn't it? Like no one could even be bothered to do a basic. I mean, in 1993 there was no Google, internet. but this is the beauty of no. it. They couldn't. They wouldn't know. You can just say what you want. <laughs> so here we go. This is this is Oliveira J Finn, who's in the University of Pittsburgh. Sir, congratulations on the wonderful April Fool story by Robin A. Weiss on Dorian Gray Mice. I've assigned it to my graduate students for review and opinions. I wonder what they'll make of it. I also left it on the desk of a young colleague who directs a vector core facility and designs retroviral vectors with a request to put in the TIF gene under various tissue-specific borders so we may keep certain parts of our male and female anatomies forever young. <laughs> <laughs> How creepy is that? How creepy is this? The next one, no, no, let me go to the next one. This, this, one's, from, this one's from Peter Starlinger, who's in the Institute for Genetics in Cologne in Germany. And he says, Sir, as a regular reader of nature in non-British country with less developed sense of humour and admitting I might find the negative end of the fun spectrum, I suggest the article Dorian Gray will not only provoke smiles from biologists, but may also have very severe consequences. Indeed, in Germany... There is in reality a grief calling it the Geneticist Network, which tries to swamp the German population with accusations not very different from that of pre-programmed death. <laughs> Nature is known as a scientific publication, not as a magazine for entertainment. 
Also, I'm afraid that our insidious people, the distinction between fact and fiction will be blurred. Nature is read by many journalists who may not be able to distinguish between real and fictional data and may therefore be misled. You know what? Love it. He's right, though. Nick, Peter's right. He, Peter's, Peter's right. exactly right. And 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 from now on, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to you, Nick, as someone on the negative end of the fun spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing? I'm all right, Nick. Nick, it's been a big week in space, oh, in space science. Did you watch new... the Did you watch the landing of Perseverance? No, because it's boring and there's like two pictures. How dare you? It's there's like boring. one picture of it. How? One how? Da- of it. How very dare you? We've taken a nuclear-powered car that weighs two tons. We've flown it to the to the to the only planet in the known universe that's populated entirely by robots. We've landed it via a sky crane and a, and and it's got a little helicopter on that will fly about, right? And you're saying it's boring. Well, from what I saw, was there was one picture of it from the parachute, just looked like a shitty remote-controlled car dangling. <laughs> And then the other one was just like a picture of a tyre, a tyre with some rocks behind it. And I was like, well, where the fuck are we? And then I went on Twitter and had a look on Twitter for videos. And the only one I found was David Bedil showing a a panned picture with sound of a weird landscape with lots of... We we haven't got that yet. Well, I was like, well, and then I tried to find the video and then I realised it was just a fake so so there, there we have got like soundscapes on mars from curiosity um but but and there's also more microphones on perseverance but yeah no it takes a while to send back all of that data it is literally you know it's on another planet um anyway it's a big it's a big deal right you know we've landed a you know it's cost a reasonable amount of money to about 2.2 billion pounds right to to make a robot Can fly I it to another planet. we haven't done it steve you and i no. we haven't i, done I mean it. Some no, no, the do. human race. No, I, I feel complicit in this. It makes me proud so we, to be a we human. We also exterminated like the Rohingya and we did like that, that too. We got you know we got we got we got, we got to take the good. The, the, I'm, the I'm rough sticking with, the smooth. with I'm sticking with some research groups did. <laughs> I didn't. Okay, whatever. All right. So there is, there is now a a a, a robot on the on um, Mars um, that that cost 2.2 billion dollars to to go and which you know people might argue is a lot of money um i would say it cost we've so far spent 22 billion pounds on track and trace and i think it's more impressive to spend to spend a tenth of that sending a rocket to another planet to drive a nuke it's about a thousandth of what the americans spend on defense each year the americans spend about one point something trillion a year on defense so well, we can, we can get onto it. So, so what I wanted to do is I think we'll, I want to do a series of things about space on the Science Shed, Nick, right? And Perseverance is a good example. But really, what we're leading up to is the Artemis program, which is the follow-up to the Apollo program, which is the kind of US government-funded international uh, spaceflight program that's the goal of landing the first woman and the next man on the moon. Why did they and call it sp- Artemis and not Starbuck? Because if you're going to call what the first one Apollo, surely the next yeah. one should be called no, Starbuck. No, the, the, fir- the, first, the first one or was Or if Mercury. Starbuck got the... Have Starbuck the first, got the right? The first one, the, Sorry, the first I'm just making really poor Battlestar Galactica joke. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so they're, they're going back. So, so NASA's going back to the moon and it's going back to the lunar south pole by 2024, which really isn't that far away, right? You know, that will be the iPhone 14 or something, right? You know, and we'll be like on the moon. Um, and uh, I want to do a series of like, you know, little bits that we're going to talk about along the way. Um, about going back to back to the moon. I love space. Um, Everyone likes space, don't they? 
And I think space. Well, I don't think everyone does, but I think si- all scientists do. Like it's something I kind of inbuilt is, to us. Space is very popular amongst everyone. I mean, think about the yeah. success of spacey films. People love space. It's a mystery. People like space, but I mean, you could argue, you know, you could spend that money better in other ways, right? You know, they, it's very expensive to to send rockets into space. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, uh, 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 but there's a couple of there's a couple of things I want to talk about. Oh yeah, Nick. Right. Uh, the first one of which, you know, I want to get kind of deep, deep and um, get really into the weeds about the going back to the Apollo program. And this, uh, so I was watching a lecture from 2009 given by Neil Armstrong to a bunch of uh, engineering um, graduates. Um, now Neil Armstrong is famous for not really giving interviews. He didn't really like it. He didn't really like being in the in the um, in the spotlight. Good man. Well. I like the sound of Neil yeah, Armstrong. he's a real nerd. Um, there's a really famous quote where he's saying, "Kind of, I'm kind of." propelled by Laplace and like I'm a, I'm a kind of a pocket protector scientist he didn't want he didn't do it for the for all of the um, fame he did it because he was kind of really interested in space flight so so that, that there's a he talks about um, a couple of really interesting machines that NASA made in the 60s right and I wanted to talk to you about them so so in this lecture in 2009 he talks about in the January of 1962 um, they the FRC which is uh, which at the time in NASA is called the Flight Research Center which is now called the Armstrong Flight Research Center um, funded a, a, a simulator program to try and develop a mach- a, a, um, a, a vehicle that could simulate landing on the moon. And so they had to think about the problems associated with that. Because obviously, if you, if you want to try and, you know, you know, train an astronaut, you've got to put them in some kind of like uh, aircraft that feels feels like it like a normal uh, um, aircraft feels. But like, you know, what it will actually be like to land on the moon. And obviously, there's a load of problems associated with that, because obviously the, the, the moon has a, you know, about a one sixth of Earth's gravity. So, you know, it's got a, you know, it's a... Um, so, so you imagine all of the flight characteristics of a, of an aircraft are completely different. Yeah, it's a bit so more gentle, like gentle. Yeah, well, so here's an example. So the first thing they, so this is how he starts explaining. So the first thing they thought to do is they, you know, they want to build this machine that's that's similar to the lunar lander, right? This is before obviously Apollo eleven, so probably achieved it. And they thought about it like a helicopter. So they thought, you know, okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to build like something that looks a little bit like a helicopter. But if you imagine a helicopter, like how, how does a helicopter move? How does it fly about? They're talking about this on the moon. So, so they want to build a machine that simulates the effect of the lunar lander. Okay. And they're going to, and, so and, they're and their way do of doing it was thinking, they were thinking about it like, a, you know, well, you know, we're going to build a, some kind of helicopter that would simulate that. Um, well, a helicopter's going to be, it's crazy because it's noisy and there's lots of wind and all kinds of stuff going on. That's true. I'm not but, really so, following. I mean, how's that going to, how's that going to simulate landing on the moon? I don't understand it. Well, so, so the first thing they said. So, so you mentioned a helicopter. So a helicopter, you know, has a rotor on top that pushes down. Yeah, yeah. And then what happens is, is, is in order to go forward in a helicopter, what you do is you tilt the rotors forward. Yeah. And what that does is it produces a, uh, a component of, <clears throat> of thrust which is behind the helicopter, which moves it forward. Yeah, right? it's pushing and that's, air backwards that's, so you move forward. Exactly, but that's proportional to the tilt angle. So the more you tilt over, the more air goes backwards. Exactly. Yeah. Now, and it's also so, so. But the trouble is, you can imagine that that, that 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 is actually proportional to the mass of the helicopter. So, if the mass of the helicopter was less, like it would be on the moon, the amount you'd have to tilt it over in order to push it is now six times the value. So the weight, right? and so the weight what, is going to decrease on the moon. So yeah. Okay. So the tilt changes. But on the moon, there's yeah. no air. How's a helicopter going to work on the moon? 
no, no, it's not. Sorry, sorry. They're not trying to build a helicopter. What they're trying to do is build a build a build a simulator right. for what it's like to land on the moon. Because okay. they've got they've got Neil Armstrong, they've got Buzz Aldrin. You know, they're like they've got a practice on the on the on the lunar landing oh, mate, module to, right. to make sure it'll it lands. You'll be all right in the night. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right we'll do it live. We'll do it live. <laughs> Surely, I would. I I would have thought they just do it underwater in some kind of viscous material or some kind of like. No, so 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 this is what's really cool, right? Is that they that you know they they had this problem and they can't just. You can imagine if you've got now a, the lunar lander, what you can't do is tilt it over six times as much because it would just tip tip over, right? You go from something like a five degree angle, which is what a helicopter has, to something that's six times that value, so a thirty degree angle, and that would just cause something to to tumble. So you can't really use the same technology that you would use in a helicopter in a, in, a, in a simulator of a lunar lander. So, so the thing they thought about, right, so the first thing they said is, well, can we just use a, a, like a vertical takeoff and landing like plane? And there was a plane at the time called the X-14. So this is NASA, before the Harrier jump jet, because that famously where, this is, can this, go up and down. Yeah, but, I mean, but this is, you know, this is years before you that. You know, right? I had a Airfix model of one of them, and it actually had the rotating jets on it. They actually oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, basically, the problem is, is that everything is five sixths too heavy on Earth. Yeah. Right. That's the way of thinking about it. So, so, so one thing you could do is you could imagine if I if I add like a little string that dangled a little uh, uh, the, uh, over the top of a lander uh, that pulled up five sixths of the weight, but but and then the lander has like rockets like the, the lunar lander would have, then that would simulate the flight characteristics of that uh, of the lunar oh, lander. Yeah, I right? see. So just, it's like it's basically like a balance. Like exactly like a balance. So, so you think, okay, well, but that must be quite difficult to build a rocket that can kind of like land, at, that, can, that can fire rockets and control, but it's also got this string above it. Because obviously, if you if you if you move left or right where there's a string above you holding five sixths of your weight, it's going to start oscillating. You're going to start swinging backwards and forwards, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so anyway, NASA built this thing, right? This is the thing called they called it the. Um, uh, so, so Neil Armstrong described it in this lecture as an engineer's delight. So he said it's got. Can I just like can I recap yeah. here just so I understand it? Right. Yeah, so yeah, basically yeah, yeah. to try and make it because basically on the moon, everything has is weighs less because there's less yeah. gravity. So to yes. try and simulate it weighing less. Right. Which is really difficult to do. They yeah. hung it from something so that a lot of its weight was effectively supported. And that's basically yeah, a little it. bit like, you know, you know, those things that like babies dangle in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, ex exactly the same kind of thing. Right, but so then they they have thing. To, that thing above it would have to move in exactly the same motion as the thing underneath it then, wouldn't it? If it moved exactly. a bit so, one so, way, so, it would also have to compensate. So, so you have to have this like basic thing that if you fire a little rocket that tilts it one way, there has to be something above it that moves the thing that the, the string above it in exactly the same way. So how did the they thing the above same... it work then? Did that have so it's called the. It? It's called the, no. It it looked a little bit like a. Um, have you ever been to like uh, the Southampton docks, Nick? You know those little things. Oh, that move a crane. The container. A crane. Yeah, the cranes that move the. So it had a crane. Hang, it was hanging off a crane, basically. Yeah, this thing was called the Lunar Landing Research Facility. It was 180 feet long, three, three sorry, 180 feet high, 360 feet long, and 42 feet wide, and it had the lunar flight characteristics of the lunar lander. Wow. Right. So, and this was called the engineers' light. So lots of pull, like like um, pulleys and. And um, and uh, and valves and things to kind of compensate for all of these processes. Anyway, it worked great, but it wasn't quite right. The um, the uh, the astronauts, you know, they played with it. They said this doesn't feel kind of dangerous enough because if things went wrong, they could just turn off the rockets and you just dangled, right? And they said this is not a good enough simulator because you have to have a bit of danger 
in your simulator, right? Because because what you want is you want, you want your heart pumping, you want adrenaline running, because that's exactly what it's going to be like when you're landing on the moon. And so you want to try and simulate that it's a bit dangerous. You and, get, and this this watch, get him to watch a Wolves match at the same time. <laughs> Like that. <laughs> that's one way that's one way you can do it but give actually what they Jeopardy. do i don't know what other Jeopardy <laughs> could you give him like he'd be gambling there'd be a poker game going on an online poker game he's just gambled his house yeah <laughs> so yeah exactly right so if you if you don't land this properly neil we're taking your house yeah, yeah exactly you know? hang a yeah, family yeah. member <laughs> over like a bucket full of because like, you could do that at the same time you've got the crane yeah. It'd be very easy to pipe rig up, in a live rig video up of them dangling over like a paddling pool, a large paddling pool with some alligators in it Indeed. at the same time. And if you made a mistake, like straight in, they should drop in. Yeah, that's what I, I think. I've got it, like, dude. I've got. Do you know sorted. what? Right, you should have worked for JPL in the seventy, in the sixties. You'd have made it. They didn't do that. They did something different. They made the second generation this thing called the, the LLTV, the Lunar Landing Training Vehicle, which you might have seen a video of. And basically, what this was is it's a it's a it's a it's a um, a jet engine pointing downwards on a gimbal. What's right? a gimbal? So what you have to tell me what a gimbal so, is. So Apart a gimbal from is like Charlie Gimbal from Lovejoy, who was the villain in Lovejoy. <laughs> what's a gimbal? So a gimbal is just a thing that allows the the, the whatever the the um, orientation of the rocket, the um, the there's a kind of a, a jet engine that's pointing downwards directly towards the Earth. And so if the so if the so if the um, if the vehicle turns left or right, the 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 jet still points downwards. Oh, it's like so a you can sort of get gyro it. thing, you know, like exactly. Like so when so you people, people have matches with someone running down the touchline with a camera, a camera that stays up exactly. Right. So yeah. that's exactly a that's gimbal. A gimbal. Okay. So they so that, so they built this thing right. We had a jet engine pointing downwards that pushed out at five sixths the weight of the of the vehicle and then they have like rockets on it exactly as you would have on the lunar landing vehicle but they've got this like huge great jet just pointing down and these things were extremely dangerous they made three of them uh, neil armstrong famously crashed one he like ejected out of one uh, literally a month before he landed on apollo 11 Crikey. right so these are things that are extremely unstable because the moon, they've got he? it'd be in trouble <laughs> exactly they lost three of them um, they built them. Uh, what's really beautiful about this thing, right, is you can imagine one of the issues associated with with um, creating these kind of machines that were kind of instrumental to astronauts being uh, being capable of landing on the moon was that, you know, this thing's pushing down with five sixths the weight of, of of the lunar lander, but it, it's a it's a jet engine, and so the jet engine has this kind of <clears throat> angular momentum, so it's rotating. And unless you figure out a way to kind of counter that rotation, what happens is the whole thing will spin in the air. So it's kind of like so, having the thing on a helicopter, the blades at the back, which kind of counteract the rotor spinning, so that it exactly, one way exactly. All the time. But the but the way they did it, this is so beautiful. The way they did it on the on the LLTV, the lunar landing training vehicle, is that they piped out a little bit of the thrust to go out sideways just enough to f to combat the rotation of the from the angular momentum of this huge jet engine so no one knew down. this was like this was the engineer's delight basically isn't it oh my god it's about. just so nerdy that they bothered to make these things right and actually they said and, and, and all of the astronauts say how wonderful it was to be able to train to train on these things and they say in the artemis program they don't know they they, they will probably have to build something similar to this but it won't be this you know it'll be something similar but the point is is that but it had to be dangerous almost by design because if it wasn't dangerous then the astronauts wouldn't be kind of scared to fly if they're not scared to fly they weren't being trained effectively enough for landing on the moon and that's what i like about it it's like that which is the exact opposite of what you think a training simulation should be it should be like oh, if you mess up okay we can try again no 
you know, they actually wanted it to be actively dangerous. The fact it was dangerous meant that Neil could land on the moon. Yeah, because they probably had like a never-ending supply of willing astronauts. Didn't they? They're like, <laughs> you know what, this Neil Armstrong, he's a bit dour. You know what? You, we'll get we'll get John Glenn we've in. We've got It'll a few fine. of the others. We've got hundreds of them lined up. There's loads <laughs> of them. And you know what? If they die, we just don't have to tell anyone. We won't get in the newspapers. There's no Twitter. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> so, so, so I think you know this is a this is one of the things one of the problems we we'll have to solve again. That we've lot you know all of the people that worked on this program at NASA they they're all long retired and some of them are dead now, right? You know we're gonna have to resolve these problems in the Artemis program in order to get back to the moon and you know hopefully we can think about the the, the next generation of the ll um t uh, t uh, tv and uh, maybe we can report about that Bunsen, Burner, Dolly, Machine, Internal, Combustion, Why Do We Need, Petri, Dishes, Oscar, Bay. Isaac, Newton, Transplanting, Bye -bye. No, no! <laughs> Hello! 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 I haven't, mate, Brian, how have you been, I haven't even spoken to you since Covid happened. Have you heard that they're going to move some of the government departments to Volvo, mate? Is that right? Yeah. How are you and Marjorie doing? Are you, you safe right. and you and you healthy? Yeah, it hasn't really got to uh, to Bilston yet, Tomorrow. mate. No, is that not, right? No, no, it's you, not. You're just waiting. We're still you're going. Just waiting. We're in the pubs all every night. We go down the pub. Just, uh, pint of Banksy's. Pint of Banksy's, yes, yeah, lovely. Put Led Zeppelin on the on the jukebox. Well, usually with Slade, mate. But yeah, Slade, of course. Anyway, that was great. I loved it. Yeah, did you enjoy that? Yeah, well, I'm glad you go. So the science show's back. Um, uh, Brian, if anyone likes the science show, they can uh, interact with us in a couple of ways. How? They they can probably best is on Twitter. So I'm at Steve the Chemist. Oh, um, the other one? The other one? He's <laughs> my favourite. You like him, do you? Yeah, he's great. He's he's such a beautiful man. Uh, yeah, that's at, at the Evans Lab and then also at the Science Shed. And so if anyone has any questions or any ideas or wants to interact with us, please do reach out. Tell us if you love us. Tell us if you hate us. Tell us if Nick's annoying or tell us if you love Brian. You haven't you haven't you haven't done my thing yet. You know, I sent you the letter about you remember the three headed stickleback. Have you read that one yet? The letter of the three headed stickleback. Why is it a three headed stickleback in the canal? Down in Bilston on an O, mate. Why is he fuck oh. why is he there? I don't understand we, it. We, we need to find. We need to. We should look into that. It's like Blinky from from The Simpsons. We'll look into the three-headed stickleback problem. Right. Look forward we'll to it, mate. Anyway, I've got to go. Bye. <laughs>